Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. I am your host, Jimmy Trainer. Thanks so much for listening. This week's show features an interview with Jamel Hill, uh, who is writing for The Atlantic and currently hosts a couple of podcasts. Jamel was named uh, as one of the producers this week for a new docuseries, That'll be coming up from ESPN on Colin Kaepernick and what he has gone through the last five years. So I wanted to get her on to talk about what we can expect from that, how the deal came about. Interestingly enough, we talked a lot about Jamel's run at ESPN, how things ended there. Um, she still, you know, said that she doesn't like the way things went down when she was hosting the six o'clock sports center with Michael Smith. So now she gets back into business with ESPN and uh, we got into all of that. So it was a good conversation there with Jamel. If you've missed any past episodes, go into the archives and check them out. And if you can subscribe to the podcast, that helps a lot rate and review as well. I won't push it and, and beg for a rating and a review, but I will beg for a subscription. That's what helps. All right, let's get to this week's episode right now with Jamel. Hill. All right, joining me now, someone I've wanted to have on for a while. Glad we can finally do it. Some big news this week from The Atlantic and the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast on Spotify. Jamel Hill. Jamel, how's it going? It's going well. Pleasure to finally be with you. Pleasure to have you. And, it, you know, it's funny. I, I mentioned you're writing for The Atlantic. You have the podcast on Spotify. Uh, there's going to be a new show coming up on Vice with you and Carrie Champion. And I, I know from Twitter that... The, the knock you will get from idiots is that, you know, ESPN let you go and, you know, you're not working basically, but you seem to be one of the busier people in sports media, which is uh, interesting that people don't really seem to realize that for some reason. 
Uh, yeah, and, and you only mentioned like half of my job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, because I also have I have two podcasts on Spotify, my own as well as the one I co-host with Van Lathan, uh, way down. Oh, right the for the Ringer. Yep. yep, for the Ringer Network, yep. and um, you know, uh, also running a production company. So it's like I traded one job for six or seven. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, but it's it's really exciting and thrilling. What happens? What tends to happen when people leave ESPN? is that in their mind, if they're not on a platform that's equal to ESPN, they feel like, oh, you're not making any money. Oh, you're not as culturally relevant, um, that there's something missing from your life. But for me, given the fact that daily television was never my testimony to begin with, that's not to say that I don't like doing daily TV or television overall, but Mm -hmm. I I did not dream of becoming a television broadcaster. So leaving behind the six o'clock sports center, leaving behind the uh, juice of day-to-day television at ESPN really wasn't that hard. So um, to me, I think my current iteration of my career is really the testament to how journalism and media has evolved. It's not even, you know, ESPN is a destination job still for a lot of people as it should be. But I think what you find is once you sort of stop thinking so traditionally about media, you would be stunned at the number of opportunities there are, the number of different platforms, for that matter, who's into and on those platforms. So um, for me, this is just really a testament to the evolution of what we've seen in media, period. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I like what you said about people think if you're not at a place equal to ESPN in sports media. And the way I look at it is I don't think there is a place that's equal to ESPN when it comes to, I mean, ESPN is still, despite what a lot of misguided people want to say, like ESPN is still, you know, it, in a way they are sports in terms of, you know, media. And like you said, there's so many opportunities out there now. It, it's, it's pretty wild, uh, maybe down a little bit during coronavirus where, you know, some pe- pe- places are struggling, but um, I always think it's weird when, you know, like if you're not at ESPN, somehow you're lesser than like, do you, like that's like the gra- Holy grail. Like that's so it wasn't for you what you're saying in terms of television, but the brand and its association with sports is like, you know, the top still at the top. So if you, you know, it's not to, to, to use like you're not at ESPN as a dig is so dumb. I think for people to do that. Yeah. I mean, and it's, um, uh, I think it's just, it just shows um, really just, not surprisingly that people who aren't in media and are just consuming it as a viewer, of course, they're not really that knowledgeable about how our business um, actually works. And I think there was a narrative for a long time that once you left ESPN, that your career sort of torpedoed. And Mm -hmm. some of that was, was, was real to some level. And some of it was um, imagined and just a perception. But I think what you, what I have generally found is that a lot of the ex ESPNers and, former alum are are really happy because I I think people don't understand the trade-offs you make when you go there. And this is not Mm. to, um, you know, make people feel sorry for me or anybody else that worked there. It's not like that. It's just that you give up a lot of your freedom to be there. A lot of your creative freedom, you give up a lot of your autonomy, your ability to do other outside projects. So those things, those other desires that you have can never be satisfied working there because as they should, they're paying you a lot of money at ESPN they're a possessive company. They're not going to let you do a lot of things. And so you, after a while, after you've kind of been there, you've done everything that you wanted to do, which is what I tried to tell people when I left ESPN is that there was a lot of other stuff that I wanted to do that I just simply wasn't going to ever be able to do there. And 
feeling as if our journey had been really completed just gave me, um, you know, just that much more confidence. I was making the right decision. And um, it's important, you know, for me to be able to do and exercise these other muscles that I'm able to to exercise uh, now. And as much as people may want to, uh, you know, either wish this upon me or imagine this is the case, I ain't missed a check yet since I left. So <laughs> I'm just like, it's not, uh, it's yeah. not a financial drop off for me either. <laughs> I, I, I have to say when you, when you ended up signing with the Atlantic, um, for me as someone who's looking for content every day on the internet, it was, I remember one of my better days because all of these dopes on Twitter thought you joined the athletic. And, um, <laughs> right. I'm sure, you know, I I've seen what you get on Twitter, which I, I I'm just, I I'm amazed that Twitter allows some of the stuff that goes on there. But what was that day when people were like, I'm never going to read the athletic again. Was it, did you get a chuckle out of that or was it still annoying that, you know, people were um, taking shots? Cause it, it just really shows you the mindset of people. Uh, you know, I chuckled at it because, but I chuckled at it, but I felt bad at the same time, not for myself, yeah. because I have a lot of really good friends that work for the athletic and mm-hmm. I feel bad for them because some of them were getting <laughs> tweets that, Hey, I'm never reading yourself. Right, right. You guys have her. And I also understood the importance of the athletic in the general media landscape. It's like they were trying a new model. Um, and because I believe in supporting journalism and uh, supporting sports journalism in, in general, I, I was a, a subscriber. So it's like, I wanted yeah. to see them supported. <laughs> I did right. not want to see a bunch of people yeah. canceling their subscriptions, thinking that they were somehow hurting me. And as a byproduct, they would hurt them. But it, it was pretty funny. I mean, the only part that was ever irritating in this whole journey, and uh, I guess uh, my entire exit from ESPN is people thinking I was fired. And it's like, right. that gets irritating sometimes. Because, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I wasn't fired. I've never been fired from any job. And that's not to say that makes me so much better than anybody else who has, but it's just like, you know, the facts are, I, I could have stayed there. I could have still been there, you know, uh, right now, my contract would not have been up until 2021. So if I wanted to be at ESPN right now, I very well could be. I made the active choice, just like I did with SportsCenter. I made the active choice to leave because it was better for me, both both professionally and personally. Do do you think ESPN gave you and Michael a a fair shot with the 6 p.m. SportsCenter? No, I don't. And I never will think that. And I think he probably, I'm I'm sure he agrees with me. Um, You know, there's a difference between a chance and an opportunity. Um, What we got was a chance, and I think they thought they were giving us an opportunity. And, um, you know, of all the many jobs and roles that I I got a chance to have at ESPN, I mean, that's always going to be, that job is always going to fit on the side of being the one that was the worst that I had there. And um, it was not, everybody came in well-intentioned. It's a lot of blame and fault to go around. I certainly accept mine. And I guess by extension, Mike's in the sense that, um, you know, there were definitely things that we could have personally done better. But the kind of support, it wasn't a lack of support. It was the kind of support we were shown that was not really adequate. And so it wound up, we wound up catching a lot of stray bullets for some things that, frankly, we didn't deserve. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, what will never really sit right with me is that um, 
uh, a lot of the things that went wrong were just so preventable had they just listened to us. And um, in real time, I knew how this was going to play out. I just did not expect it to play out somewhat involving Donald Trump and just <laughs> and not even, you know, um, a year into um, the entire exercise. So it's, it's just to, uh, it's just going to always leave a bitter taste in my mouth. Can you give me an example of something where you, you, you said, I think you said um, they gave you support, but not the right kind of support or what, what do you, what can you elaborate on that? Just curious. Yeah, like, I mean, I guess by what that, could have been done differently to help the show go on. Oh, I mean, I mean, there's a lot and particularly a lot of this in the beginning stages. Uh, if you go back, uh, his and hers did not end until December. And we were due to be on the air the day after the Super Bowl in February. Considering the colossal amount of marketing and everything behind it and what they wanted it to be, it makes no sense to rush this show on air. Mm. We had less than five rehearsals. We didn't know what the show was. Um, we weren't allowed to pick our coordinating producer, which I think was a big mistake, um, because I think given what we were trying to execute and um, you know, we were looking at this in the vein of what they did with Scott Van Pelt because that was the comparison they kept giving us when they sold us on the idea of like why this would work and why this made sense. Scott got given a very long time to craft out, plot out his show. He also was allowed to bring everyone with him on his show. We were not given that same leeway. Now we understand that we're going to have to merge a little bit of staff because the 6 p.m. Sports Center had a producing staff. We got that. And in fact, the, the show producer for the 6 p.m., with somebody we wanted to keep, did keep, um, and, she's, and she was terrific, Jasmine Ellis. But um, there were other parts of the show that we didn't have as much say-so and autonomy, and I just don't really think they got us. I, I mean, I think they liked a lot of the things we did on His and Hers, but they didn't like the things that, or I should say the things that kind of made us an attractive fit were not things that necessarily fit Sports Center. Like they loved all the viral stuff that we did, you know, when we recreated Anchorman and recreated Stepbrothers and right, coming right. to America and even a lot of the conversations that we had, but they got so fixated on the viral stuff. And I think back to that ad campaign they ran for us for Sports Center, where it was uh, movies, music, and more. Since when is the 6 p.m. Sports Center been about music and movies? And even right. on our own show on His and Hers, 90% of the show was about sports. I mean, we had our fun in between and we would get in where we fit in, but it was always about sports. And so they put out this narrative that our show wasn't about sports and we never got from up under it. It was a well-intentioned but poorly um, thought out ad campaign. Um, and nobody understood what the ramifications of doing that would be because right. one of the first bad faith narratives that got off of, got out about our show was that we weren't about sports, and that was not true at all. You know, it's funny. I'd forgotten about the promos till you just mentioned it. When you mentioned it, they came back in my head about the music and the movies and more. So, um, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that, but that was, I remember, a big marketing campaign for the for the show when you guys took it over. Yeah, I mean, and you know, in, a, in addition, you know, to that part of it, I just think the time when you look at the the shows that they've kind of launched recent, recently, they all had the benefit of much more time. I mean, Get Up, look how long they took to put Get Up together, and even once you know it got on air, they still did some tinkering with it. Yeah, right. I was going to say that what Get Up is now is not even remotely close to what it was when it came on the air. And anyone in television knows that's the case for everybody. I mean, when I started. Yeah. 
um, knew, well, it was Numbers Never Lie then. I, the show, there's the big change in itself. The show was called Numbers Never Lie when I started. <laughs> it was his and hers, you know, right. by the end of it. And it was completely built around the relationship that Mike and I had. And so shows take time. They need to grow into something and, um, and grow into their identity. We didn't have that benefit of time. Um, it was a lot of publicity around us taking over the Six O'Clock Sports Center. So I think there was this expectation we were going to have everything figured out once we got to air and we, and we really didn't. And not even halfway through um, the early part of our show, we get a major le- leadership change when Norby took over for Rob King and Norby was not the one that wanted us on 6 p.m. Sports Center. So then it felt a little bit like we were, you know, um, these highly drafted quarterbacks who, you know, got to a franchise and they fired the GM and they fired the head coach and then they want us to run a completely different offense. And so then mm-hmm. everybody is on the wrong page from the beginning. So we just had, um, as I've explained, uh, you know, to people before, you know, Donald Trump didn't get me off Sports Center. That whole controversy, yeah. it had, it was really unrelated. I was unhappy before that happened, and I knew before that happened. And Mike and I had this discussion privately many times. I was going to be done with the show when our time commitment was over with, and that's not even to arrogantly suggest that they would have wanted me back because they may not have, you know, but we were guaranteed a certain amount of time on Sports Center in that slot. And I knew once that time was up, I was done. And, um, you know, it just, the, the, if anything, Donald Trump did me a favor because he sped up the timetable for me <laughs> <laughs> or allowed oh. that to be, um, you know, allowed that to be uh, a, a more, you know, um, allowed that to be something that was, was that was infinitely possible. Right. I'm sure he'd be thrilled to know he did you a favor. He would. Make his, <laughs> make his day. Take, yeah. He'd like I, to take credit for things usually that he doesn't do, but I'm going to give him yes. a little bit of credit in this case. <laughs> well, let, let, let's get into Trump for a little bit before we get into the um, Colin Kaepernick docuseries, which will be fascinating um, since you just mentioned Trump. A, a couple of things on this. I, I wanted to sort of get out of my system because one of the things that has always frustrated me about the narrative that um, ESPN covered politics and so you sort of tie into this is, with that whole thing is because is I whenever I heard that from people who follow me on Twitter or readers of my column or just anyone it would get me so infuriated because ESPN you know maybe the last month is a little bit different but up until then ESPN did not cover politics you were not on ESPN breaking down health care and discussing abortion rights, people would take things you said on Twitter and then say, oh, ESPN covers politics. And the fact that people are so dumb that they can't separate the two as if you're on Sports Center, um, you know, like I said, breaking down whether we should be in NATO is just so absurd. Did, did now, obviously on Twitter, you know, ESPN and Twitter is a weird thing. I, you know, they, they want people to not go full out and say whatever they want on Twitter. So, did that, did it bother you at all that people would sort of, when you were at ESPN, um, act like ESPN was covering politics based on what people were doing on their Twitter feeds? Or did you think, or do you feel, because some people feel like it's all encompassing. What you do on Twitter is part of your work. What's your stance on that? Uh, well, the, there were so many frustrating things about that entire false narrative that ESPN was too political, which often was conflated with them being too liberal. Okay. Right. So, because there were some yeah. people that were okay with ESPN being political had they been more right-leaning in their mind, right? And there were some people who just didn't want to hear about it at all. So it was like two different arguments or two different false narratives were coexisting and being intertwined together, and they kind of had no business doing that. 
So the political rumblings, it was a slow burn and it was started to me from voices and people who were acting purely in bad faith, who had their own agenda and who wanted to use the name and um, reputation of ESPN to build their own reputation mm-hmm. and to enter themselves into um, a higher profile by using ESPN as target practice. And I mean, just think about it this way. I'll take SportsCenter, for example. Mm-hmm. I remember when, um, I think it was Jamie Horowitz, when he went to FS1, Jamie being obviously former at, formerly at ESPN, used to be in charge of, of my show, in charge of Numbers Never Lie slash his and hers. When Jamie got to FS1, he kept spinning this narrative, brilliantly so, that highlights were dead. That was his whole thing. Highlights right. are dead. Sports Center, psh, you know, they're going the way of the abacus. That was mm-hmm. what he was doing. Yep. Which is excellent marketing. That's what he's supposed to do. He's a competition. He's supposed to take shots. They have nothing to lose. Take shots at the main competitor, at the big kid on the block, all in well. What happened as a result, and I'm not saying it's a bad result, but then you started to see ESPN kind of change because of that because that narrative somehow started to take place that nobody wanted highlights. Nobody wanted to see, you know, that traditional sports center that they had been seeing when, yeah, sports center was never going to be as popular as it was before in the mid nineties and a little bit after, but that was yeah. mostly because consumer habits had changed. It's not that people yeah. didn't like highlights because otherwise how is house of highlights and bleacher report and all these other digital highlights, places existing. It's like, people do love highlights. They just may not love it in the same form that they did, but nevertheless, ESPN reacted. And it was the same thing with this political liberal narrative. You had people who were from a much lower perch than ESPN making these attacks. And ESPN, my disappointment with them is that they were treating them like they were real arguments. And they right. weren't real arguments to begin with. Right. And if right. they wanted to use um, ESPN giving Caitlyn Jenner the Arthur Ashe Award to mean that this is being people too political when... One, Caitlyn Jenner is a Republican. Two, this is a issue about trans athletes, which have become a much um, more elevated conversation. And when you consider the fact that trans being the marginalized, the marginalized communities almost, um, mm. with the uh, the rates of depression and suicide, and the the conversations, the unfortunate conversations being taken place about young trans athletes, it was an issue a sports network should be involved in. And um, so it was just that they were taking these, uh, you know, these dog whistles and blowing them rather loudly, but that doesn't mean they were right. And it was funny because when we were doing his and hers, I never, no one ever accused me of being too political and nobody right. ever did. And, and, and look, right. I realized that his and hers audience is probably half of what the 6 p.m. sports center audience is. Mm-hmm. And because we're branded at that time on ESPN2, which has, um, which was at the time with, you know, First Take and Mike and Mike and Sports Nation and other opinion shows was branded as, okay, this is where you get all your commentary and edgy opinion from. So it's going to be seen in a much different light. But I just noticed that as the network started to have a different, um, you know, a different face to it or faces as you started to see people like myself and Mike and Carrie Champion and Sarah Spain and um, and uh, Jane McManus at the time, uh, as you started to see more people of color, more women in in positions where they were driving content with their 
um, opinion, suddenly ESPN is too liberal. Suddenly they're too political. And I don't think that was by accident. I mean, I think there were some people who definitely had, uh, who were, um, you know, definitely had some racist and sexist undertones with their criticism mm -hmm. because um, they didn't like how the network was changing. And obviously because we're bringing our perspective to a lot of sports issues, it suddenly became liberal content. And so I, I guess like for me being in the middle of that, it was really frustrating because um, it wasn't, as you said, like we were ever on te television talking about, um, you know, immigration reform. We were not talking about, um, you know, pre-existing health conditions. We were, everything we talked about related to sports or related to politics and sports and or social issues was all in currently in the news. We weren't pulling right. things out of thin air. You know, Colin Kaepernick happened in 2016. All right, so what were we supposed to do? Not cover it? I mean, so it right. was just always a terrible argument to be made. And I just felt like the stupid people in the room controlled that conversation. And I was really dis disappointed that ESPN allowed them to lead it. Yeah. Yeah, I, and from the outside, that's what it looked like happened as well. I, I was shocked that they would I was always surprised I mean it really happened more I guess when Jimmy Pitaro took over but I, I was always surprised by Jimmy Pitaro just always going out of his way to say um you know uh stick to sports sports only we're, we're only going to cover politics if it intersects with sports as if that's not what you were doing all ASPN was doing all along it, it sort of I think it added fuel to the fire that was not needed but um that sort of my own take on that. So no, I mean that's 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 pretty uh, you know accurate. I mean I think it was one of those things where um, when Jimmy Pataro took over, that he felt like he needed to reinforce <clears throat> what ESPN you know is about. It's like reinforcing rules that are always on the books. I mean um, I think most of us even before my you know gaffe if you want to call it that on Twitter. Um, we were all under the impression we knew what we weren't supposed to do necessarily on Twitter. Right. I'm not saying we followed that perfectly, but what I am saying is that, you know, there was, it was just really a stronger reinforcement because it was about showing, it was about showing that, Hey, we're serious about this now. And it's just like, why do you even need to do that? Because you're only capitulating to people who frankly have no power. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least. 
as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last thing on Trump, because you, and then we'll get to Colin Kaepernick, because you wrote something recently for the Atlantic, not the Athletic, the Atlantic. <laughs> um, NFL owners need to break up with Donald Trump. And I wrote something uh, a couple of weeks ago about how the NFL needs to completely ignore anything coming out of Donald Trump's mouth when it comes to the kneeling um, during the national anthem this upcoming season, because the last time the NFL sort of buckled and gave in and it was an embarrassment. So we have like two different angles on it, but we're sort of like almost in the same place on it. Um, So I know the, I, the thesis of your column, and correct me if I'm wrong, I read it, I just want to be clear about it, is there are several owners who are at the, Trump supporters and at the same time trying to be part of the movement now where everyone is aware that things need to be done for social reform, social justice reform, um, police reform, and you have owners donating to Trump and donating to those causes, and it just doesn't jive. Is that that's basically the gist of what you were saying, yeah. correct? Yep, yeah, that's what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question on that is, do you think, and I, I don't want to come off where I'm giving the owners the benefit of the doubt because I am not pro-owner in any way, shape, or form, but do you think, and I, this is hard for me to wrap my head around because I knew in 2016 what Donald Trump was, and I'm not surprised by anything that's taken place over the four years, but do you think those owners maybe... I mean, there has to, there have to be, you have to believe God, you have to believe that some of them have seen the light and have sort of changed their opinion on him. Would you think that's the case with any of them? Or do you think, um, you know, they want their tax breaks and they're still going to vote for him and while also trying to donate to these other causes and really it offsets them if that's the case. 
Uh, no, I don't expect them to have changed their mind, but I don't know if it was, and the reason I don't is because their wealth and their privilege, um, frankly, leaves them very out of touch and they don't draw mm -hmm. the connective tissue between supporting a bigot and trying to, at the same time, um, uh, uh, support causes that are the counter to what Donald Trump and his policies often represent. They have not made the relationship for some reason between the policies, the language of Donald Trump, um, uh, the rhetoric that he has and how harmful that is to the communities that they claim that they're trying to help. Because of all the many conversations that we've had about race currently, one mm -hmm. of the ones that I, have continually come back to is when, you know, we get to the, the, the point in the discussion where you have well-meaning, well-intentioned white people asking black people or people of color, what can they do to help? And what I often respond to them with is that you have to be willing to risk something. See, the thing is, is that once you do take a firm stance that there are certain things you don't tolerate, certain injustices that sicken you, um, certain things you're not going to support, you're going to be somewhat ostracized from the social group you're most comfortable in. I'm speaking to white people here. That means right. that there are other white people who will look at you differently, who will maybe wonder about, you know, why are you so supportive of these marginalized groups who will question you? And that may cost you some influence and um, and or um, some kind of standing in your social group. To them, Donald Trump is very much a social group thing where, you know, you have Bob Kraft, who is very close friends with Donald Trump, who has spent personal time with Donald Trump. Stephen Ross is the same thing. They don't necessarily think of him as the president who is committing constant atrocities and completely undermining these marginalized communities that they swear that they want to help. They see him as the guy that they go to dinner with and they haven't made the relationship between what a awful leader and president he is to the guy that they eat steaks with. And they don't understand that. And so, but that's what happens when you have so much wealth and privilege that you don't realize that your money, putting money in his pocket is doing so much damage to the communities that you, again, allege that you carry, carry, uh, care about, which is why I said in my piece for the Atlantic, you know, think of it this way, racism's up on um, uh, on Donald Trump by a million because Stephen Ross raised $12 million to Donald Trump and then he just committed 13 to his social justice organization. Right. So right, right. it's just like, you know, because giving back to marginalized community to them is about charity and not policy. And yeah. the thing is charity cannot, charity cannot dismantle structural racism. Policy mm -hmm. can. And so you right. gotta be against policy, which means you gotta be against the president. And most of them don't want to risk doing that, which is why I do not expect that their minds have been changed because I don't think they ever viewed this president as dangerous as the people who um, he uh, tends to have, uh, you know, tends to exact his, uh, you know, bad policies on. I don't think right. I don't think that they've uh, ever understood exactly how harmful he really is because I, to them he's just that just this guy that is part of their social group 
Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And I just wonder, and I know this this is not the reason you'd want change to happen, but I, I have to I have to wonder if there's gotta be a couple of owners out there who just just see a, just alone his response to corona and how he's handling this crisis. And you know, the, the numbers are what they are. We we've been in this crisis mode since March, and you know, he has press conferences where he's talking about cable ratings and you know, Chris Cuomo should be moved to mornings or whatever. I mean, th- I feel like you know, I get what you're saying where you want the change to be because of his awful policies and how he deals with minorities and I'm with you. But if the reason they sort of can turn on him is something else like Corona, you know, you don't you don't even think that's strong enough to where maybe people quite say like this guy cannot be the leader of this country anymore. He's a complete and utter disaster on every level. Uh, I don't. And, and I know, and I, and I hope I'm wrong. You know, I, I mean, I don't know yeah. if we'll ever know how any of them voted or if they did actually vote for that matter. Right. But I, um, I, I don't expect them to stand in opposition um, of him because they, they couldn't even stand in opposition of him, you know, when he came after their own league, as you've right. been covering the right. NFL for a long time, they're very arrogant about, their standing in our society and about, you know, being the king of all sports in America and for Mm -hmm. them to just kowtow to somebody who just, um, you know, completely tried to tread their whole league is very telling. So if they couldn't even do it, um, you know, for their own league and and their own players, I, I doubt if they would do it for American people that they are generally disconnected from. Yeah. Uh, man, I would just—I would hope someone would see the light after four years of just complete anarchy in this country. But who knows? Um, how do you think? I mean, obviously, NFL players will take a knee this year during the anthem. How do you think this ends up playing out? Because the league is trying to act like they're acting now, like they're going to be fine with it, they're going to accept it, they're going to allow it and support it. Whereas, like you said, and I touched on in in you know, 2016, 2017, I forget the exact, they, they sort of buckled to the pressure of the white house. Um, can the NFL just ignore the white house and go forward and let players do what they want there? Or do you think it's going to be a back and forth? Cause you know, Trump's going to tweet about it. You know, Fox news is going to cover it 24 seven. Um, my take is the NFL should ignore it. Well, how do you think it ends up playing out? Um, I think they, I think they should definitely ignore it. I mean, I think they should have ignored it the first time because right. You know, once again, it's like talk about false narratives that got spun. You know, this idea that the NFL was losing its grip on uh, on its American popularity because the (laughs) anthems was always a lie. I mean, it was just such a lie. And so um, I I think now they should feel especially empowered to ignore the president, because if there is some semblance of football this this fall, um, given that, you know, we will have survived months. I'm not saying survived it incredibly well under <laughs> this pandemic. Um, people are going to be really happy to see games being played. And yeah. I just don't see somebody feeling that strongly about it, that they're going to be like, you know what? I've gone all these months without the NFL. Donald Trump says not to watch. I'm going to keep going. I don't think they're right. committed. I just don't. So, right. um, and, and the difference is now they will also have the, um, they will have the benefit of public support. Um, behind them because, you know, the recent polls that have, have been taken, you know, since these conversations have sprung up about, you know, social justice and, and racism, the majority of people say they now support kneeling. 
Um, and that wasn't really the case before. And so you have that. I think you have players who have been empowered and emboldened by the events happening in this country. It will be a much tougher fight and a much bloodier fight if the NFL tries to backtrack on some of the messaging they're trying to send now that they're in on, um, you know, allowing their players um, or supporting their players' right to speak out about, um, you know, social injustice. I mean, mm. if they if they aren't prepared to see this all the way through, uh, all they're going to do is further expose themselves as liars. And as it right. is, they still can't get from up under the atrocity of what they've done to Colin Kaepernick. And so to add on to this, um, if they were to, uh, you know, withdraw some of their support from the players, I mean, I, I just think that would just be so despicable. And I can't imagine that they want to go down that road. Yeah, they, they've put it all out there. That, I, that would be amazing if they did a, a 180 on that one. But, um, I, you know, you hit the nail on the head about, you know, listen, I always thought it was bullshit then when people said that they stopped watching because of the kneeling. And you made such a good point. I'm really going to think it's bullshit this year when after, like you said, four months of five months, six months, whatever it's going to be of us trapped in our houses, no sports, the NFL comes back. I'm sorry, you're not, you know, that in September, I'm sure we're still going to be quarantined in some fashion. You, there's no way you're going to pass on a full Sunday of NFL football because players are kneeling the national anthem. I just don't buy it for a second. No, it's uh, it's just really unlikely, um, yeah. you know, for that to be the case. And I, I think that people will will kind of be in the mood of they'll be looking for something to kind to kind of rally oh, yeah. around. And yeah. um, you know, the NFL has had to learn the hard way of what happens when they're not there for the fight, and that's why. For me, I have no problem writing as many columns as possible, reminding mm. them of how they abandoned this fight the first time, because yeah. I don't know, I don't think they can ever atone for that, personally. Um, certainly, they can try to do better, and this is not to say I wish they weren't doing what they're doing now, but they have another opportunity if you know the script plays out, as most of us suspect, and Donald Trump begins to try to use the NFL as a campaign issue. And oh, by the way, they should expect it to be a more vigilant attack, particularly if there's a sense that he is losing major ground to Joe Biden or is in a fight for his own presidential survival, then yeah. he can expect those attacks to amp up. Um, you know, hence why I think he has not let go of the Bubba Wallace thing either, is that this right. he's trying to grasp desperately and pathetically grasp on any opportunity to try to, um, you know, to try to play on that fear mongering that he feels like drove his base to the polls the first time. And so he's having a lot of trouble recreating that, um, some of which is because people have gotten smarter. And a lot of it is, frankly, he's running against another old white guy and it doesn't work as well. So um, yes. <laughs> it's uh, because of that, I think he is going to start to feel desperate and the NFL is going right. to be um right there is low-hanging fruit but the problem is i think because we're you know the, as we just both pointed out because of the situation this country is in because of COVID 19 I, I think that's just going to really not work as well this time around yeah yeah you're 100 right i'm you know he everything he's done for the past four or five years has been completely deranged and now with the desperation based on the polls uh, lord only knows what you know the nfl is going to be in for it hopefully they have the guts to just I think ignore it or at least just, you know, tell them to, you know, stick it and keep doing what you got to do. 
this all ties into Colin. So let's talk about um, the announcement this week. Uh, there's going to be a, a docu-series about Colin Kaepernick's last five years. You're one of the producers for it, um, and it's from ESPN Films. So let's let's start with, you know, earlier you had talked about sort of the sour taste with the 6 o'clock Sports Center and, and, the, and the Trump stuff via ESPN. Um, I, did you have any trepidation of getting back into business with them? Of course I did. <laughs> I mean, it was something that, uh, it, this was not an easy yes by any, by any stretch of the imagination. And I, it's not because I, out of bitterness, it's just more or less, I, I just really felt like there was a great trust that was broken. And, um, but I think what was helpful is that some of the people who are involved in this on the ESPN side are people who, who I had good relationships with, you know, Libby Geist, for example, um, mm. Kevin Merida, you know, Rob King. I mean, these are, uh, you know, Rob was the one, it was his, you know, brainchild for Mike and I to be on the Six O'Clock Sports Center. And, and he really did believe in us. Um, now, do I think he did everything right in terms of how uh, he helped us or tried to help us execute that? No, I don't. But, um, you know, he has generally been supportive during my time at, at ESPN and Kevin Merida, of course, who I worked with very closely at the Undefeated and have always um, you know, really admired him as a, as a great journalist. So th that those components of it make it easier. But I mean, the biggest piece of this for me was not just Colin Kaepernick himself. And um, I guess to give a little bit of a backstory, I should say that, you know, this was not something that was in the original playbook, so to speak, is that mm -hmm. Colin first called me to discuss, um, you know, um, ESPN. I mean, he he was very intentional. He wanted to know more about what the real story was behind my fallout or behind me leaving and mm -hmm. what he wanted to make sure was that he wasn't about to jump in the bed with uh, a company or companies by extension disney and espn that really had done something that had gone that goes against his principles which he holds very dear and in, in very high esteem it's like they mean a lot to him and uh, he was very honest with me is that, um, you know, how they treated me, he felt like was a major um, factor in what he decided to do with Disney and ESPN and, and the undefeated. And so when we talked, I mean, originally I was honest, but I was fair. You know, I, I mean, I, I spent 12 years at ESPN. The majority of those 12 years were good years. Mm -hmm. The last two, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't have a spirit of like vengeance when I talked to mm -hmm. him or bitterness or anything like that. Um, and I made him aware of some of the blind spots and some of the issues I thought that ESPN had internally. But I also made sure to tell him that I thought he had a very unique opportunity to do something that ESPN needed, which is they needed a culture changer and they needed somebody who could come in there and disrupt some of their systems and have the leverage to disrupt those systems. And he's the perfect person to do this. And the other thing that I also thought about is that I got to work with a lot of talented black and brown people at ESPN. Some of those people, I think because of, um, because of some of ESPN's failures um, systematically have not been able to get the nurturing, the promotions, uh, and the credit that they deserve 
Colin being there changes a lot of that because, you know, he is, it's very important to him, important to him to elevate and empower black and brown voices. And he's going to do that with the undefeated, which I frankly have felt like has, um, while being highly regarded by some people uh, within ESPN and, and the higher ups at ESPN, has never been able to get its due because of this period of time that ESPN went through where they were sort of afraid to touch some of the subjects that the undefeated willingly embraced and wrote about very thoughtfully and critically. Um, mm. There's a lot of people who didn't even realize the undefeated was an ESPN property because they did not marry the two together. And um, I, I think the lack of support that the undefeated has gotten, um, you know, was really unfortunate. But now uh, with not just Colin being there, but I think with Bob Iger seemingly taking a more active role in seeing, ensuring the success of the undefeated, um, it has a huge opportunity um, to really blossom the way that it all, always should have been. So it, this wasn't just about what happened with me and ESPN. It was also about giving people there who are very deserving an opportunity to do some of the things that they had been unable to do before. And, and Colin is going to be huge in changing some of that. Not just, this is about much more than just the documentary. This is also about the other content initiatives and other um, types of content that he hopes to um that he hopes to, uh, you know, collaborate with and, and create at, at Disney. So, right. Um, I, sh- I should have mentioned this is like an overall production deal. And the highlight, I guess, of the production deal is, is the docuseries. But it's this is the deal that Colin Kaepernick made with ESPN Disney is not just for this docuseries. There's going to be other things as, as well, which yeah. will be. And I, and I think that's an important part of it is that, yeah. you know, it's not many athletes that get to walk into a place like ESPN and, and establish their own narrative um, and not just establish their own narrative, but also uh, get an opportunity to change and um, highlight some of the narratives of, of the culture in general. And so it's, it's a really dynamic opportunity for him and for, and for a lot of folks that will be involved. And, and to me, that was, that was the real victory in all of this. Mm-hmm. Will you, now, will you be working on other things or will you just be working on the docuseries with, with Colin? Uh, I think as of now, I'll just be working on the docuseries. Um, right. But, and, you know, I mean, I guess you never know how these things, you know, evolve. I mean, I, I think it's helpful. You'll be back that, in ESPN before we know it. <laughs> I wouldn't take it that far. I would no. not take it that far. Um, <laughs> You know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it it, it was it, it in some ways it does feel a little it does feel a little awkward. Uh, this is not something I saw on the 2020 bingo card, that's for sure. Um, that's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. just going back to uh, in some capacity to work with with ESPN, but and you know, it's 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 it's, it's fitting because of of you know the the, the project we're talking about because yeah. of Colin. And and what ultimately will be the goal with the docuseries? It, it, it will it. Will it just focus on the last five years or will it sort of cover his whole life? I, I think it's just going to be about basically since he started taking a knee, right? Well, um, we haven't ironed out all the specifics yet. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, I'm aware, like most people are, that there's a series about his um, sort of his childhood and the way he grew up that's, uh, that is being produced by Avery DuVernay for, for Netflix. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I know that that's one component of his life. But to me, the the more 
the key thing that I want to uh, help bring across and help influence and, and my goal in all this is, is, you know, there was a lot of really bad narratives and, mm-hmm. you know, really bad um, and inaccurate, I think, you know, falsehoods and positions that were taken about what he was doing and why. And it, this is going to be an opportunity to rewrite um, a history that should have never been written. And um, so I'm treating this as if this is something that years from now, when people look back on to try to find out what happened with Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick or who is Colin Kaepernick, that they will be able to look at this piece of work that we produce and, and not just understand who he is and, and what he meant, but for that matter, how he changed history. It's like I'm looking yeah. at trying to make this into a historical document. And so um, that to me is the part that's, you know, really exciting because, you know, here's somebody who, who, whose legacy has only mushroomed since he took a knee. And so I'm, I'm super excited about being able to have any role whatsoever in this. I, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to speak for Colin because that wouldn't be fair, but you mentioned narratives that are up, that are out there. And I know, I have no doubt he was blackballed. I had no, I have no doubt the owner's, you know, at some point came together and said, we're not hiring this guy. He's not worth the trouble, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the narratives that's out there now um, is this is all sort of being reevaluated is, you know, you hear rumblings about there's three teams interested, four teams interested. And then there's the narrative of, you know, does Colin Kaepernick even want to play football? Do you know, can you speak to that? Would you rather not break the, you know, I don't know if you've had conversations with him, but one of the narratives is that like, he may not even want to play football anymore. Do we know if that's true or not? Uh, that is untrue. <laughs> that is not true Good. whatsoever. Colin wants to play football. And yeah. I know a lot of people find that curious because they're like, wait, I don't get it. How does he want to play for a league that blackballed him and has treated him so poorly for just, mm. you know, wanting justice. And my response is always, you know, I, I don't know how many people in our country have worked at a union shop. It's a lot of probably union employees out there, obviously. But, you know, union grief, what he settled with the NFL was a grievance. It was a mm-hmm. labor grievance. Okay. Mm-hmm. And people, um, they file grievances against their employers all the time that work there. I mean, Tom Brady sued the NFL at the same time he was an NFL quarterback. It happens. All right. Mm-hmm. And so this is the the professional league in America. And um, it's a league that he has worked his whole life to be a part of. Um, he has sacrificed for this. It means a great deal to him. And you, it's hard to swallow and fathom to tell somebody that they shouldn't care about something that they've been working their whole lives to get and that they did have and that they came within you know, um, uh, a few plays of actually winning the highest prize in this, in this sport. So it's a little insulting for people to, um, theorize that he could give up football just so easily when you considering he spent pretty much his whole life trying to get to it. So, Mm uh, he still wants to play. And, uh, you know, I, I, like you, I've continually hear these reports about three or four teams that are interested. I'll, I'll believe it when I see him at somebody's practice facility. And, um, you know, just as disingenuous to me are these coaches that are suddenly coming out saying how, you know, he should have been a starter and this and that and all that. And I'm just like, 
his phone, uh, y'all, y'all had his phone number since the off season of 2016. Right. Could have called him well, anytime. And that's another and that's another narrative that people have thrown out is that he would only come back if he's a starter, he wouldn't be a backup and I'm like, well first of all, if if the Seattle Seahawks signed him to a contract, uh, you know, I don't think Colin Kaepernick would expect to start over Russell Wilson and yeah, he could probably start over some of the quarterbacks in the league, there's no doubt about that, but if if there's a situation that's a fit for him, you know, I don't you know, I, I there's again I don't know where it comes from, but there's you know, he won't be a backup is another narrative that's out there that yeah. yeah, these uh, the, the reality is this. Colin has never been offered a contract. Right. So he's never been offered anybody. Nobody's talked position with him. Nobody's talked role. He has never gone into any of these situations and demanded anything. They haven't called. The only right. team that even came rem- remotely close to, uh, to bringing him, really bringing him in, was Seattle. Right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of one of the main people that I was sort of uh, I had raised I had a raised eyebrow about was the comments that Pete Carroll made. It, it, he had a, he talked to Colin. You know, there was some conversations between those two about um, you know about him possibly coming to the Seahawks. But as I know, um, you know, based off the intel that I have, the way Pete Carroll represented that situation is false. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it is completely false. So um, that's what I mean about, like, you know, people having this revisionist history to make themselves look better. And right. there's nobody, you know, the, the, the people can look around the league at the backups and the lack of quality backups. Um, and for that matter, what some of these backups have been paid. I mean, you mean to tell me that you're going to pay Chase Daniel? Let's just say it was about money. Okay, let's just say for some reason Colin Kaepernick went into any negotiation, which, again, as I said, has never been offered a contract, hasn't mm. talked money with anybody. If somebody, if he said, you know what, I'm only playing, I'm not paying for less than 10 or $15 million a year, whatever. I, I'm sorry, I'm old enough to remember when Mike Glennon got $17 million for a year. Yeah, I, right. I, I do recall that happened. Mike Glennon, right. all right? Chase Daniel, oh, look at what they're making. I Yeah, I mean... I, I'll never forget because, you know, sometimes you have those tweets that end up getting like a lot of pickup. And I remember when the uh, the Raiders signed, who was the awful Bills quarterback? Now I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah. And Gruden uh, loved him. And he was just yes, terrible. Yes, he was. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. And, I, you know, and the Raiders sign him and it's like jo- John Gruden's so high in this guy. And it's like, oh, does it all, all Colin Kaepernick has to do is just like print out the tweet that says they've signed this quarterback. Peter, uh, was it not Peterman? Yeah. Wait. Nathan, no, Peterman. Nathan Peterman. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just print out the tweet that said the Raiders signed Nathan Peterman, bring it to court and you should win your case against the NFL. I mean, it, it got a little ridiculous there with some of the quarterbacks who were getting jobs while Colin was on the sidelines. Uh, well, there's Nathan a lot of people Peterman. who, uh, as we discovered in the, in the year since, and I guess, and you know, this came up, you know, not too long ago with Drew Brees who just are intent on misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was that was unfortunate, and I want you know. I have to say though, I do. Do you think? Well, let me ask you this: Do you think Breeze has handled it well since the initial comments? Because he seems to be genuine. Am I wrong? Uh, on that? I do, I do, I do yeah. think he's handled it well. I mean, at first, you're always, I think, in those initial stages, you're always um, skeptical because you're like, okay, you know, Drew Breeze, who is one of the most beloved NFL players, and real ambassador in new Orleans, like very highly thought of 
I think it, the reaction was so shocking to him because mm-hmm. he never expected that that this would be the response. Um, right. Even though he did something that was very typical, is that he took, um, you know, a, a social justice issue and conflated it to his love of country and love of flag, and for that matter, in the process, intimated that the people who wanted to, you know, uh, protest and 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 even those players who had taken a knee for social injustice as if they didn't love America too. And it, and his love of America is somehow greater than everybody else. So he centered right. himself on it. And so um, I just don't think he ever anticipated that reaction. I think that is definitely what engineered the apology. But to me, where he showed that he really was starting to get it or, or is when Trump, you know, t- made those tweets about him and, mm. you know, just seemed to come to his defense and he didn't take the cover. And right. we know that Drew Brees is friendly with Donald Trump. He didn't take the cover and, in fact, went back at the president. I thought that was pretty big. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think on some level, Drew Brees deserves a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, especially when you consider what he's done in New Orleans yeah. and other things. You know, he showed a consi- consistency and- there. But I think there were some things about this he just right. didn't get. And a lot of it was because I don't think he wanted to at first. And now he's got the opportunity to get yeah. it. And what I liked about what Drew Brees did is, uh, you know, we live in this world where sort of like everything you do, you have to do it on Twitter and Instagram in order for it to, I don't know, like, it's just like sort of what everyone does. And I like that sort of he, the, after, you know, he said what he said, the backlash, there was an apology, I think, the next day. And then, like, he sort of went away for a little bit and then came back with about, I think, you know, like you said, you know, went back at Trump, had a donation. I thought that was pretty uh, generous. But, like, he wasn't, like, every day trying to, like, appease everyone. And he, I think he, like, stepped back to listen and understand what was going on. He wasn't just out there every five minutes tweeting. and You know, I mean, we've had this situation now with um, Deshaun Jackson over the few last mm-hmm. few days. And he's, like... Like, just get off Instagram for five minutes. Like, that might help the situation. You know what I mean? Like, everyone everyone should just pull back from the social media a little bit, I think, when the heat gets on them. But that's... Yeah, of- I mean, it's okay to, like, constantly not, you know, kind of be... It's to give everybody some room to 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 see what kind of person that, you know, you, you really are. And, you know, with Deshaun Jackson, I mean, yeah, it, it was abysmal what he did. Um, but... It, it was interesting watching this play out is that um, there just seemed to be, um, it, you know, I, I don't, I'm not here to give Deshaun Jackson excuses. I mean, he's a grown man. He doesn't really, um, he doesn't need anybody to, to, to certainly to carry his water. And especially, I think when you're an adult, there's just a certain amount of responsibility that you just have to take and you just have to own what you've done. But there was, there was, you can see the ignorance, there like it, it was just so startling to me um right that it was so over truly, the top. Yeah. yeah it's like he truly didn't know better and i didn't i i don't mean i don't want people to to take that to mean i am not giving deshaun Jack, jackson a pass at all but it was right. it was kind of like wow he he really didn't know better <laughs> and i don't know and that, that's kind of sad when you think about it to be yeah yeah the age that he is and really honestly not know better and it was just like wow he you really didn't know it. Yeah. So, and that's when um, I think, especially like step back and get off the Instagram live and, it, right. and not just him. Like it's any, anyone when they get in trouble, I feel like when you get in trouble, back away a little bit, it doesn't matter what it's for, what your job is. Like, you know, it just is an overall thing. Like 
step back and listen to what's going on and then maybe you can learn and then you know fix the situation a little bit right but I some mean, people it, they yeah, just, some people they, don't do that yeah yeah uh, social media what a world um <laughs> How, you know, I, I I said this earlier and, you know, I don't want to wrap on such a dark negative note, but I am blown away by some of the stuff I see you get on, on Twitter. Um, it, does it ever bother you still or is it just noise? Do you have like a way to handle it? Because it's, I mean, I'm not sure anyone gets as vicious um, a response as you do sometimes. Um, and again, Twitter allowing it is a whole other subject, but are you... I mean, it would be so sad if you're kind of like used to it, but you can't let it affect you in a way. And I don't know how, how, uh, what's your relationship like with Twitter and the mentions? Uh, I, I got, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Um, I know it doesn't, it doesn't, and most importantly, it does not impact how I look at myself. You know, right. the, the people that say things to me don't know me. I'm, I am just some public figure, something they can scream at sometimes or, and, or, hurl a few racial uh, racist and uh, sexist comments at. Um, so they, you know, which is kind of the sad part is like, they don't really even see me as a person more like a kind of an inanimate object almost. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I don't let it at all um, determine how I perceive myself. Uh, it gets frustrating mostly because I'm seeing it in volume. So by the right. time I do, people have this, idea that I respond all the time and I don't it's like I just get such a high volume of it that I pick one or two and you know maybe I, I yeah. enact my own sense of Twitter justice and like go after them but yeah. after a while it, it just it, it does get a, a little bit annoying the good part for me is that my relationship to social media is is a lot different than people who are younger than me I didn't grow up with social media I know what life is like without it Right, and so right. I only take it so seriously to begin with, but younger people, it's not that way because that's all they've ever known. And so, yeah, I never really yeah. thought of it that way. It's, it's yeah, interesting. It's, yeah. It is all they've ever known. I mean, I'm used to, I'm, I'm of a generation that socialized in a different way. So it doesn't mean right. I, I, I only am going to put so much value in it. I see the professional value in social media. And unfortunately in a lot of, um, you know, media circles and, and people that are interested in, in my work or, or maybe having me do things for them, it does mean a lot to them that I have 1.3 million Twitter followers. It doesn't right. really mean much to me. It doesn't mean right. I'm a better journalist because I do. It just means a lot of people just know, happen to know who I am. But unfortunately, right. in our business, there are people who are actually using these metrics to quantify whether or not somebody um, is right for a certain position, which I think mm -hmm. is it's terrible and an unfortunate indictment of, of where we are. So for me, um, there is some unfortunate professional value in being on social media, but the key is I always tell um, folks who are younger than me, who unfortunately have had to have a more intimate relationship with it is that um, don't let people who don't know you tell you who you are. Um, yeah. And mm -hmm. um, none of these people that send some of these things to me can tell me who I am. So, I'm just, I'm, I'm really not as bothered by them. They just happen to get on my nerves every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, listen, you open that, you open that app and someone's going to get on your nerves no matter who you are. It just seems, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you. I took, I didn't, I didn't go on Twitter for like four days over the 4th of July weekend or whatever. And then Tuesday back to work fired up. And, the, and I think the first thing I saw was the ridiculous 
Bubba Wallace tweet from the president who I don't even follow. I mean, I wish people didn't retweet him and then it gets in my timeline and it's like, oh, here we, you know, like you get that four day break and then you're, and like you said, for work matters, you need it and then you get into it and it's like, you know, it's like a punch in the face almost. But, you know, I'm like you, I like, like you said, you know, I'm not that generation where, you know, I was able to, you know, I still watch TV on cable. I don't stream everything. Like I was able to watch the movies over the weekend. It was nice. Now I'm worried about Twitter and, um, and then you get right back in the mud. Yeah, I know it's it's it's, uh it never um you know it never necessarily lessens, but um you know you get to a point where you you just kind of learn to tolerate it, and as I said, the professional value is is there, but I I don't I can only put so much personal stock into it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I appreciate you coming on, giving me so much time. I should so we got let's let's run down the list here. Writer for the Atlantic, Jamel Mm -hmm. Hill Unbothered podcast on Spotify. You have the podcast with Van on The Ringer, getting ready to do the show. It's supposed to debut later this summer with Carrie Champion yeah, on Vice? Yep, later this summer, yep. And then, of course, the Colin. Is, is there any ETA on the on the docu-series? I know it's not even, you know, the deal was just announced, but is there like a goal to get this on the air by a certain time? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, we're, we're starting to, to uh, figure out a lot of things. Uh, now, but like, um, you know, so far we, we don't have any firm timetables for things, unfortunately. Gotcha. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, um, stay safe out there in LA and social distance and wear your mask and be well. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate (laughs) the conversation. All right. My thanks to Jamel Hill. Really enjoyed the conversation. Looking forward to that Colin Kaepernick docu-series whenever that airs. Uh, if you are a new listener if you're not someone who subscribes to the si media podcast if you could hit that subscribe button it helps tremendously so um please do that and uh if you can rate review that helps too but subscription is what it's all about so hit that button and uh stay safe wear your masks social distance and we'll see you next week right here on the sports illustrated media podcast take care At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.